Building Men is brought to you by Finish the Race Apparel, ftrapparel.com, the creators of all things Building Men, and by Become Stronger Industries, become-stronger.com, the creators of handmade steel maces, hammers, and other badass equipment. When you put conscious effort into something over and over and over again, in time, it will literally start to change the physical structure of your brain and therefore then change how change you change who you are and how you engage with the world. You're listening to the Building Men Podcast with Dennis and Anthony Miralda, brothers on a mission to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. What's up, brother? What's happening, man? How you doing? I'm good. I, um, I'm really excited for our guest today. Um, and the way I'm going to segue in is to talk about some habits that I've developed over the course of the last year and a half of my life. So as a, as a middle school principal in, in education for such a long time, I was clean shaven. You know, my hair always looked a certain way. I would wear a suit and a tie to work every single day. You know, I was very buttoned up in the way that I presented myself. Um, more tight lace, tight ass, I would say. Very regimented in that respect. And while over the last year and a half, I feel like my personal regimen as far as waking up a specific time, meditating, training, what I'm eating has gotten more regimented. My physical grooming routine has fallen off a little bit. And I mention that because I really think I'm a (laughs) dirtbag. I really think I've turned into it with my meetings being on Zoom. I'll give an example. I woke up yesterday morning and I had a full day of meetings on Zoom every half hour or so for the entire day. And I looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, why do I need to shower right now? I can just slap some shit in my hair and get on a Zoom meeting. No one's ever going to know. I, I had a button-down shirt on and whatever. I wore pajama pants and Ugg slippers throughout the entire day yesterday. I feel like that's the first place you go to all the time is just not showering. <laughs> just, it's like, well, the shower can clearly get pushed to the back burner and, and all this. And that's what I'm doing. And I, I wanted to address it today to, to see if you think that it's a problem because I still haven't showered since, <laughs> what's today? Thursday? I want to say Monday was my See, shower. I don't shower so for other people. You know, I shower because I feel good after I do that. Like, granted, I think people overdo it a lot, but I do it because I'm like, it's just like cleaning my room. Right. You know, I don't need to do, you don't really need to do anything ever, you know, but like you do some of this stuff, especially the things that only you see, because it's like, well, this makes me feel good. This makes me feel like I'm getting things in, in line, in order. Yes. But if you don't find showering a priority, then I guess... You know, whatever. I mean, it's just... That's what I'm saying right now, and I feel embarrassed, but on this show, we're very authentic. We put shit out there, and I wanted people to know that that's where I am right now. I need to get... When was the last time you showered? Monday. Okay, so it's Thursday. Thursday. And I'm thinking, even this morning, I wake up. We're we're coming into the studio. We have a couple interviews today. I'm I'm going to train later on this afternoon at 2.30. I'm like, if I take a shower now, am I wasting that? Because I'm just going to train and get sweaty. Why do I... I'm going to shower now. And you can go and just do it after. And then, again, before we bring the guest on, uh, then Sophia has practice tonight. My daughter has basketball practice. I'm like, is it worth it 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 to shower before? And then you're going to get home and you're kind of tired and you're like, all right, I mean, I could just wash my face. And then now you're. And then you lead into all of a sudden two weeks later and you're like, I don't know when the last time I showered was. So do you smell me right now? That's my question. I don't. Okay, that's good. I don't. No, that's great. All right, so. And here's the thing. I started to, to think about, and when we, when, you bring the, when we bring the guests on, you'll get the idea once we go through his journey. Because yeah, it gonna is going to be like, so you think I fucking smell every day? Right. <laughs> Fascinating because it's going on expeditions and, and these different experiences that we will undoubtedly talk to um, our guest about today. It's, that's something that I thought about. Like, I'm going on this expedition without going anywhere by not showering. I can't wait to talk to him and ask him a million questions about all these different things. That's my this segue. is your journey. This is my, my right? journey. Your I, big journey. Of, uh, so let's, let's segue over now. We'll, t- we'll stop the nonsense. So we're going to segue over into our guest today. His name is Akshay Nanavati. He is a Marine Corvette. He is the author on, of Fearvana, the book, and also the movement. Um, he, he is... One of the most badass individuals I have ever heard about. Wait until, 
for the Building Men audience, grab a notebook, grab something to write with this journey that you're about to go on for the next hour or so. This is a game changer as far as our perception of, of identity, our perception of reality, our thoughts around pain, around suffering, around fear. It's this next hour is going to totally shift your mindset in, in one direction or another. So welcome aboard, my friend. Thanks for being here on the Building Men podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So what are your, uh, am I a dirtbag? I'll just put that out there <laughs> right off the bat. Dude, I just got back from Antarctica where I didn't shower for like 20 days. So it doesn't bother me one bit, man. I'm all about it. <laughs> See, the difference is he was in Antarctica. You're living at home. And <laughs> it's a little bit of a difference there, but whatever. We're all battling our own experience. Yeah, there. It's right. all relative. Yeah, exactly. all relative. <laughs> so I don't want to do any disservice to your um, to your origin story. I, I listened to you and I'll give a shout out to Ian Lobos of the men on purpose podcast. We had him on our podcast. We were guests on his podcast, um, following along on his journey. I heard the episode where um, he had interviewed you and I immediately reached out and my initial discussion was, I, here's a little bit about building men. I'd love to have you on. You're like, I'm going to be in the, the South of the world for the next 30 plus days. So when I get back, let's reconnect. And so this is us reconnecting after your adventure, and we'll get into it. But why don't, why don't you start with your origin story? How did you get from you, – you were born, I believe, in India? Um, yep. And then India. from there, you moved, in, you moved to the United States into the Texas um, area. Talk to us a little bit about that journey growing up until you decided to go to the Marine Corps. Sure. Yeah. As you said, I was born in India. I moved around a lot. I moved from Bombay to Bangalore to Singapore to Austin. So by the time I was 13, I had lived in four different cities in three different countries. And the beauty to that, I was very worldly. I kind of, even to this day, I don't feel like one country is my home. I'm, you know, part of the world. But the sort of challenge to that, which led me down a dark path for a minute was I was very adaptable, but being adaptable, especially as a young child, when you don't know your path, you're very impressionable. So I got into a group of friends and, you know, I take responsibility for my actions as a, as an adult, of course. And even looking back, I take responsibility for my behavior, but as a young child, you're very impressionable to your environment. So I got into a group of friends where soon after moving to Austin, Texas, got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol, into this world of self-destruction. I used to cut myself. I still have these scars on my arm, burning myself. I got like this burn on my arm, very self-destructive. I lost two friends to addiction and was kind of heading down that path myself. I was, I've always been the kind of person, whatever, whatever path I choose, I will go all out. And at that point in my life, drugs was my vehicle of expression. So I pushed pretty hard, but thankfully I, that I got out of that world. It was the movie black Hawk down. Y'all ever seen that movie? Yes. yes. Yeah. That movie was the trigger that changed my life. Watching these men, especially that one scene where Medal of Honor recipients Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, they volunteer to go to the ground to set up a defensive perimeter, knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel are heading their way, but they volunteered anyway, not knowing when reinforcements would arrive to protect one of their fellow soldiers. And ultimately, they died. And the man they died protecting is still alive today, Michael Durant, because of what they did. And that just triggered something in me about the nature of the human spirit, the kind of courage that it would take for a human being to sacrifice their lives for somebody else like that. And I remember after watching that movie, I read the book Black Hawk Down and just started devouring book after book after book on military and life in combat and almost overnight stopped doing drugs and enlisted in the Marines. That was, that was the transition from there, from this very self-destructive dark world to now a path of meaning, of purpose, of serving something greater than myself. It took me about a year and a half to get into the Marines because I have flat feet, I have scoliosis, I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. So I had to get medical waivers, which took a little while to get, but finally, then and the only reason they let me in because it was a post 9-11 world. So here's a young, dumb Marine who wants to be a grunt, you know? So yep. like, we'll take all the bodies we can get. And that's what got me into the Marines and out of that, out of that path. And the Marines was the birth of everything that is Fearvana today. And I can't wait to talk to, about, to you about that birth of Fearvana, but to, to backtrack slightly, we, we do work with um, young men that are trying to figure out their path in life and their journey. And I'm fascinated with the idea of nature versus nurture. That's just something mm -hmm. as a, as an educator, as an administrator for years, I was always, mm -hmm. always thought, is it, are they born with this? Are they born with this genetic makeup that they're pre predestined to act in a specific way? Or is it the environment, mm -hmm. how, how they're, how they're raised, how they're socialized in your situation, you mentioned that you fell in with a group of kids in, in Texas and they were, you know, using drugs, they were um, abusing alcohol. 
based on your experience, you got there and that was the group of friends you fell in with. If you fell in with a group of friends who were into polka dancing and, you know, selling cookies on the, do you think you would have gone in that direction or was there something in you that was going to be addicted to that growing up no it, it's something i've thought a lot about my parents have asked me because i had great parents i didn't have an abusive childhood traumatic childhood i couldn't have asked for a better life my parents always gave you know gave me great education and kind of a good like indian parents are notoriously bad for overprotecting and my parents weren't the extreme as some other indian parents that i know but you know like very very good life basically so point is it wasn't sort of traumatic i wasn't running away from a traumatic childhood or anything like that but when i look at my life and now even the level of knowledge based on years of research and studying neuroscience psychology spirituality i would venture to guess i haven't put my brain in a brain scan but i would venture to guess that there is some sort of dopamine miswiring in here. And they've actually shown that that's people who have kind of like, I forget how they, how they call it, but something wrong with their dopamine receptors, they're more prone to addiction. And just the nature of the life that I live now, I would venture to guess that there's some sort of <laughs> dopamine miswiring in here that has me more prone to that world, uh, to that kind of ex extreme edge in addiction. But at the same time, the brain is plastic, right? We, we are not victims to the to our nature we can change the brain and that's a neuroscientific fact that's not an opinion that's just a complete fact now obviously as a child you don't know i didn't know all the things that i know now right so to your point like had i and i've always like my parents have asked me what could we have done differently that you wouldn't have gone down that path had i let's say gone into mountain climbing rock climbing ultra running all the things i do now i more than likely would have gone deep into that world as like earlier than you know than than now at the same time i probably would not have joined the marines and gone so ham onto that into that edge so no regrets but i do think that had had that exposure because when i grew up in india like i didn't know the things that i do now i didn't know that was a thing like i didn't grow up with outdoor sports you know i grew up in big cities my entire life i didn't know rock climbing was a thing i hadn't seen snow the first till i was 13 or 14 the first time you know so i wasn't like some of my polar buddies who were born into cross-country skiing when they started walking you know what i mean that wasn't me um so i do think some exposure would have transformed my path and at the same time i so it's a combination i think of nature and nurture that led me to it and now i'm ultimately transcending my nature or at least constantly in at work at it to create who i want to be and i will certainly get back into that idea of the neuroplasticity in our brain and how our brains are wired i want to make sure that i um close the loop with the, your experience in the marines so you mentioned this was post 9 11 world that you were joining marines coming from your descent uh, you know your indian heritage did you meet an experience in the marines where you felt that you were there was extreme racism we are now fighting wars with people that look more like you right and so was that part of your experience in the marines not even one percent wow. like we joked about we joked about it a lot like when we were in iraq one once we found all these ieds so they were like dude not a body go get a picture like you're making bombs you know because i was the terrorist in the group so i mean it was but it was never in in like reality like we joked about but like in the marines we joke about we we play up the stereotype of every race the white guy we make fun of the black guy the mexican guy i was the terrorist you know so we we play it all of that was just completely just in joke and humor but and in fact it was almost like a plus. I remember in boot camp where you rarely, if ever, get compliments. A drill instructor started talking to me and found out because I wasn't a U.S. citizen when I enlisted. I was only a green card holder, and he actually praised me. He was like, "I love it, man. You're doing more for this country than many Americans are." You know, so and I'm not sort of that. That was him saying that to me. Right. Uh, so it, it, it was it was almost like a badge of honor in some ways that I got praised for that I was joining and serving this country that in many ways wasn't even mine at the time. Right, like I wasn't even an American when I first enlisted. And you went into the Marines, and not only did you go there and go through boot camp, you were the top of the class. You, you stood out amongst your peers in the Marines. So talk to us a little bit about that, that experience. And was it at that time that you recognized, like, whatever it is in front of me, I'm going to – the storm in front of me, I'm going to go through it. I'm no longer going to try to go around it or, or self-medicate or buffer in whatever way. I'm going through the fucking storm in front of me. You know, I wasn't the physically the fittest guy when I went into boot camp. I certainly wasn't nearly as fit as I am now because I had just come out from a world of drugs. Inevitably, I wasn't that fit, right? So in boot camp, I wasn't super fit. But in infantry school, I graduated as the honor graduate of, uh, of my class in infantry school and came out as a lance corporal instead of a private first class because – in the Marines, I although I wasn't even like the fittest in boot camp, I thrived mentally. Like 
the Marines taught me the beauty of adversity, the beauty of going to war with yourself and finding out who you are in the process of that battle. Because only when you go to war with yourself can you really tap into something within yourself to discover your ability to transcend that suffering, to transcend that pain. And as I said before this, I'd lived a fairly comfortable life. You know, I didn't know the depths of suffering. And the Marines taught me that. And God knows I could not be more grateful for it because that was the birth of everything I am today and everything I do today, you know? And so I thrived in there. Like I absolutely loved the suffering. I absolutely loved, and it wasn't the suffering so much because the suffering is the means, not the purpose. The purpose is the transcendence of the suffering. The purpose is who you discover within yourself and ultimately what the human spirit is capable of when you face adversity. And the only way to know that is when you face it. You can't know that unless you can't know that by reading a book. Not that there's obviously anything wrong with reading a book, but reading a book, listening to podcasts, anything like those things can give you spark moments, can give you ahas, but you've got to play in the arena. You got to go to battle to figure out who you are, to figure out what the human spirit is capable of. And that's where I, that's what the Marines like birthed that, that in a way almost became a new addiction, that desire, that drive to continue my quest to explore the human soul. And after joining the Marines is when I got into outdoor sports. I got into rock climbing, mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving. I mean, you name it. Nature kind of became my playground to explore the limitlessness of the human potential. But it all started when I went into boot camp. You've got to tell your story of what your role was in the Marines. I think about as my my kids are younger and they're playing with Legos. I felt like I was I was a hero by being able to walk through and clear the Legos off the floor so no one stepped on a, a Lego as they're going from one spot to another. Your role in the Marines, tell us, tell the audience about what you what was sure. your role? What did you have to do? Yeah, so when I was deployed to Iraq in 2007, one of my jobs was to walk in front of our vehicles every time we hit a danger zone or like what we yeah, we call the danger zone to walk in front of our vehicles looking for bombs, looking for the IEDs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines to blow up the vehicles. So as you can imagine, a somewhat dangerous job because if somebody was going to get blown up first, right? Guess who it would be? <laughs> Legos, bombs, Same right? Thing. It's all... You, you you understand exactly what exactly. I mean. Showers yeah. at home <laughs> being in our game. That's what I'm going to try to <laughs> make. I'm going to all the, the regular stuff that we're doing on a regular so basis. So we're like I'm, the same people here. Same exact thing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So now you come out of the Marines and you're on this journey, but you, you talk very candidly about your experience with post-traumatic stress, first of all. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping you could go into that a little bit and, and the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder and what you talk about is post-traumatic stress growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so yeah, when I came back from Iraq, I struggled with this world, with life in the normal world. And so I wanted to go back to war every chance I could, you know, I was volunteering to go back to Iraq, to Afghanistan, but at this point the wars were kind of dying down. So when I got out of the Marines or right as I was leaving the Marines, I decided to go to get my master's in journalism so I could go back to war as a combat journalist. I just wanted to return to, this sounds very paradoxical and crazy, but to the peace of war. There's a kind of strange peace and simplicity that comes from life at war. And when that opportunity did not present itself, I slowly but surely, it wasn't instantly after coming back, but over time, I went deeper and deeper into this pit of darkness. I started drinking, like one drinking one day a week, became two, became three, became four, became five. And as I said, when I do anything, I'd go pretty all out. So we're talking at a point in my life where I would drink a 750 milliliter bottle of vodka a day. And this would go on for binge drinking for days on end. And it was one morning when I woke up after one of these binge sessions and I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take this pattern of drinking and sobering up, drinking and sobering up. And I was seconds away from picking up a knife and slitting my own wrists. And that was kind of rock bottom, as you can imagine. That began my, my, my rise out of that abyss. It wasn't a smooth rise, but it, that's what, that was the moment where I began that climb. And so I started going deeper into neuroscience, into psychology, into spirituality, initially just to kind of find my own way out of the darkness, but obviously it led me on this deeper path to figure out how do we all navigate human suffering. And so, as you mentioned, you know, when I was, when I was going down this place, at one point I was seeing... Um, a VA therapist, and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And as I started researching all this stuff myself, when I, after hitting rock bottom, I realized that there's a, there's a distinction between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. Those are not inherently the same thing. They are, they are different. And we have come to associate them as the same thing. But the problem is when we attach the word disorder to post-traumatic stress, it becomes our self-identity. 
So for example, I struggled with survivor's guilt when I came back from the war. I was very jumpy with loud noises. I did not like crowds. And these were all, I was told, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. But the fact of the matter is, I was jumpy with loud noises because my brain learned to associate loud noises with death. I spent seven months in a war zone where loud noises meant you could die, a bomb, right? So inevitably, my brain was more hypervigilant. My, my consciousness was more aware than the average person because that's just a survival mechanism. That's what the brain does. It looks at how to, how to keep you alive. So the point is, it wasn't a disorder, quote unquote. It was a normal human response to war. That's just as a survivor's guilt. And it's not just veterans who go through it. Anybody who loses somebody, especially if you really lose someone you love, and the circumstances obviously are, you know, it depends on certain circumstances, but we ask ourselves, why, why them? Why not me? You know, survivor's guilt is just a normal human expression of love. And I've started to reframe my experiences and say that post-traumatic stress is not indicative of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, uh, yes, I had post-traumatic stress, but how I viewed it, my response to the post-traumatic stress can either lead me down a path of disorder or growth. And by attaching the word disorder to it, as so many of us do, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there's actually a great study on this. Dr. Martin Seligman, he's one of the leading researchers in the positive psychology movement. He went into the West Point Military Academy and he asked the cadets, how many of you have heard the word post-traumatic stress disorder? And like 90, 95% of people raised their hand. He then asked them, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic growth? And it was something like 5%. And the point is we've created a paradigm, not just for veterans, but in society that trauma equals disorder. And that's not inherently true. Adversity, trauma, suffering, pain can equal growth. And if that becomes our paradigm, that becomes our mental model of the world, that becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy. So I started to reframe my views on not just trauma, but any kind of suffering. And that is the essence of what I do with Fearvana. And, and it, has, it has actually the most important skill to master in the human experience, because ultimately, what is it we seek, right? We seek happiness, fulfillment, inner peace, however, whatever words you want to use to define this thing we seek at the bottom of all this, the, the superficial goals, right? Why do I want a family, a car, money, house? You get to the core of it, and it's some version of that. And we're going to suffer in the human experience. But if you find beauty in suffering, if you find the bliss in suffering, if you develop a positive relationship to suffering, now you can find bliss, you can find meaning, you can find joy, whether life is going good or life is going bad. And that's why developing a positive relationship to suffering is the fundamental and the most important human skills, because it will help you transcend whatever pain you go through in life and will help you find bliss in the day-to-day -day content of the human experience. And that's what I started to do with post-traumatic stress. And that's what I now do in every context from the words like fear, suffering, stress, adversity, uh, uh, pain. All these words have a very negative connotation. Nobody hears them and think of them as positive. And what I'm, my mission is to reframe that. For myself, I've developed a very strong comfort zone with suffering, which is why I go to Antarctica for 20 days and do the things that I do. But now the mission is to kind of help others do the same. And it all starts with our constructs around how we view it. A lot of it is the words we use when we speak to ourselves. I am sad. I am depressed. I am anxious. Fill in the blank after that. And you are identifying, you are attaching that experience to who you are, the, the human being that you are. So many of us do that. And you had mentioned re, reintroducing your relationship with pain, with suffering, with fear. If I'm, if I'm stuck in this spot and those things are um, roadblocks for me, what would be the first step that I would need to do to change my relationship with those ideas of, of pain, of suffering, of fear? You know, the, the first step is recognizing that it's okay to feel them. So what normally happens is people feel them and then we think there's something wrong with us feeling it because so many of the quote unquote experts will say, will demonize anxiety. And I'm talking like the biggest names, I'm not going to name names, but the biggest names in personal development will like teach people how to get rid of anxiety, to eliminate fear, to quote unquote, be fearless. And so what happens, and I've seen this over and over again, people feel fear or anxiety or stress, and they think there's something wrong with them because they think they should not feel it. Quick example, I worked with a client once who he was traveling to Iceland on a vacation on his own. It was the first time he was going on vacation on his own. And he felt tremendous amount of fear. And he was then beating himself up because he was working with me and I do a lot of crazy things. So he's like, you know, you do all this crazy stuff and you're and like, and I'm just going to Iceland on a comfortable vacation and I'm terrified. So the problem was not his fear. The problem was his relationship to the fear, his judgment of himself around the fear. It's normal that he was scared because he had never done it before. The brain's normal response to the unknown is fear. So when you let go of what I call the second darts, and let me explain that, 
Buddha said that we're all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control. So an emotional response. And neuroscience has shown this. Spirituality has shown this. We don't control most of what happens in our brain. So if right now I'm sitting in this room and somebody comes in with a gun, I'm not going to pause to choose to feel fear. My brain's going to respond with fear because it's a valuable mechanism, a valuable response to a X scenario, right? So I'm not choosing that. That's the first dart. The second dart is what we do after the things we don't control. And we always go into this self-talk of what's wrong with me. I'm a piece of shit. And we kind of beat ourselves up and we go down this rabbit hole of what I call second dart syndrome. So the first step, and it's hard to do, it requires, it's much easier said than done, but it's it's disidentifying with the emotion. And as you said, we, we do this, right? We'll say, I am sad. I am, I am scared. I am weak. I am. And we make this our self-identity. So it's recognizing that, look, I am not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I'm not my experiences. I am the thinker of my thoughts. I am the feeler of my feelings. And I am the experiencer of my experiences. There's a space between what is and who I choose to be outside of what is. And that space will shape your destiny. And now this is, again, much easier said than done, but the key is recognizing, hey, and you, you got to talk, like I talk out loud to myself all the time. Talking out loud to yourself is an invaluable tool. Like I look like a nut job when it's like if people, if people were sort of seeing me, right, with camera following me. But the, the reason I do that is because it reminds me of all these things. Like I'm a human. I get lost in my own thoughts from time to time. And then I'll say, look, I'm not, and I was doing this in Antarctica when I was skiing and having a hard day. I was like, I'm not the mind. I'm not the body. I'm not the mind. I'm not the body. Like repeating these mantras to myself becomes a really valuable tool to separate myself and then to recognize that, look, it's okay if I'm feeling fear. It's okay if I'm feeling anxiety. That is what it is. And, and actually neuroscience has also shown simply by labeling it like, hey, you know, I'm feeling anxiety right now. And there's an important distinction in the words, not, not I am anxious. That's not me and my identity. I'm feeling it, right? My feelings are not who I am. So even using those words are very, very powerful. Like I'm feeling fear as opposed to I am scared, right? So I'm feeling fear. And when you do that, when you label that emotion, neuroscience has shown that it, it, it in decreases activity in the emotional parts of your brain and increases activity in the part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex related to focus and awareness, meaning that it's helping you create that space between the emotion and you as the observer or the feeler of that feeling. And when you create that space, now you can choose what you want to do with it. It's interesting in my work with educators as, uh, as a principal, you recognize that there are the typical responses to fear. There's the, the fight, flight, freeze response. And I've even heard it called either flock or fawn, where it's almost this chameleon type of identity where whatever is the, the thing in front of you that is, that is um, inducing that, that fear response, that you just go along with it, that you change who you are to assimilate to whatever it is to, to avoid the, the pain of the, of the fear. So in your experience and, and everything that you have gone through and everything that you are going through, do you still recognize those responses to fear, fight, flight, freeze response to fear? Very much so. And, and actually, it's, it's also sort of a misconception that those are the only three responses. In Fearvana, I talk about like the different kind of responses. There's one, for example, called the tend and befriend response, where you respond to fear, like, like and this is a big thing in the military, where I, I feel fear because my buddy got hit and I run to save him. It's an automatic instinction. Now, one could call it fight, quote unquote, but the different terminology is like a tend and befriend response. So point is to say, though, I feel fear all the time. Like I do things, the things I do are absolutely terrifying. I spent 20 days in, in Antarctica where I got frostbite on three of my fingers in polar storms that are so savage. I mean, like 60 knot winds that are some of the most savage environments a human can can endure. I'm about to go into 10 days of complete darkness, silence, and isolation in a few months. That terrifies me. I'm going back to Antarctica this year after getting frostbite in three of my fingers. That absolutely terrifies me. So I feel the fear all the time in the things that I do, but I've developed a comfort zone with fear because I, I, I tap into a lot. And, and, and the key thing I want to reiterate is that I was not born this way. Like when I was a kid, my parents will tell you, like, I was scared of a Ferris wheel. Forget about a roller coaster. A freaking Ferris wheel terrified me. You know, so the point is, I wasn't I, I wasn't born some warrior kind of, you know, engaging fear all the time. I systematically developed this comfort zone with fear by doing all these things. Like after joining the Marines, I was terrified of heights. So I went rock climbing. I went skydiving. I went mountain climbing. I was terrified of tight spaces. So I went caving. Like I systematically engaged my fear and worked my way up the ladder of risk one step at a time till, till I got to the point that now I'm comfortable with fear, that it can show up and I'm I'm okay with it being there. And now like the, the, the silliest things scare me. Like I'm more scared 
you know, asking a woman out than I would be going into a polar storm in Antarctica. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I've developed a strange kind of comfort zone with suffering on the most extremes, but the quote unquote normal things in life will like, oh shit, how do I handle it? So, but the point is that the, 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 the fear response is one that I'm comfortable with. So no matter in what context it may show up, I'm able to engage it and find a way through it. And that's the only way too. It's, it's, it's not about avoiding it or running away from it. And this is like, this is so, so important because you will hear people do this all the time and parents do this with kids and we do it out of love. I get it. Like nobody, nobody's doing this intentionally to be damaging, but we'll say, don't be scared. Don't worry. Don't stress out. Don't be, we always say, don't feel what you're feeling. Nobody says, Hey, it's okay. If you're sad. Like I went to one seminar once at personal development center and this gentleman had lost his father and he was grieving. And at the seminar, they were trying to help him get over his grief. And I'm like, he lost his father. Like grief is a natural response to that, you know, but we're always trying to escape any emotion that is challenging. And therefore we deem it a quote unquote bad emotion, right? And these emotions are not bad. Grief, sadness, pain, like fear, anxiety. These are not bad emotions. They're just emotions. There are no good or bad emotions. There are only emotions and it's up to us to decide what we do with them. So by engaging with these emotions, you develop a comfort zone with them and you develop an ability to transcend them, to face them and to find the, the, the battle, the, the thing you're moving forward on the other side of them. And that key point is it's really important to have something to try to, to give, to, uh, to put, put that emotion into. So you're not just kind of living in a void, right? Like, okay, I'm feeling anxious. Now, what do I, what do I, what do I take and do with that emotion? And that's what I call your worthy struggle. Like we all need a worthy struggle. You can call it your path in life, a uh, meaning, whatever it may be. I call it a worthy struggle because I the, like having passion for what you do is a good thing, but especially with younger generation, when you say follow your passion, it often conveys this idea that if you love what you do, it'll never be a day of work in your life. You know, it'll be sunshine, rainbows and unicorns. And that's fucking nonsense. Like I love what I do, but it's work, man. And so the, so the point is, that's why I call it your worthy struggle. You will struggle, but is it your worthy one? Is it the one worthy of who you are and who you want to be? It doesn't have to be climbing mountains or going to Antarctica or doing the things I do. What's your worthy struggle? Find that, embrace it, and become obsessively pursue, obsessively pursue mastery at that craft. And so when you do, when you do face suffering, suffering becomes a part of that adventure on the pursuit of your worthy struggle as opposed to a barrier to what you think you seek. Before we get into that idea of the worthy struggle, I want to um, get into the idea of fear again. Um, first thing I'm thinking is, is it is it you go the the action dispels the overwhelm? Where I will take this step, I'll start climbing the rock, I will go into the cave and face the fear, I will start doing it and then overcome and become that person. Or am I saying? I am the person who can climb the rock, that I can get into the cave. So is it the identity that comes first or is it the action that comes first that will cause the identity to follow? Love that you asked that question. That is a fantastic question. It's a bit of both. So you can start with shaping your identity through self-talk, through visualization, to getting clarity, through journaling, through meditation, all this kind of inner work and reflection for sure can help build the muscles to face that fear. And I do all of that as I'm preparing for Antarctica, visualizing, meditating, all of those kind of things to, to reinforce my self-identity. But ultimately, belief is built on a battlefield, which means you can talk to yourself all day, but unless you go into the arena whatever your arena may be, you are not going to really know how you can handle that scenario. So building that self-identity is valuable to help you set foot in that arena and to give you the weapons to kind of face whatever demons you will confront in that arena. But you have to go to war to really know what your ability to transcend that suffering. And that will then rebuild, that will then like in, enhance and really ingrain that identity that you have now chosen to become. Right. That's when it'll ingrain. And then inevitably, and it's a cyclical process, right? You don't magically do one thing and now you're sort of good and you've solved all life's problems and you're evolved and you, you know, it, it's done. You will reach one new arena, one new awakening, one new step in your evolution. And then there's another one. Then there's another one. So it's this cyclical process of action and awareness. You take action, you gain some new awareness. And this is also really important that, and this is something I didn't used to do in the, in the past. When you go, when you go into these arenas, when you play on these edges, whatever your edges may be, it's invaluable, arguably necessary to come back and reflect on it. In the past, I would just jump from one edge to the edge to the next to the next to the next. Now I take some time to reflect on it, to consolidate those lessons, to ingrain those lessons, to, to, to help them uh, re rebuild my identity into the next version of myself, and then take that awareness 
into the next arena, into the next one, and the next and next and next, so on, so on and so forth. So it's a dance between awareness and action, and you've got to play on both edges. Both have their purpose, and both are necessary. So now I'm a parent of um, a young man or woman that's going through a difficult challenge in front of them, or I'm a high school, college kid that's listening to this podcast right now, and there's something that I'm afraid of. There's fear in front of me. I've said it to my own kids, and you had mentioned people say, don't be afraid, don't be scared. What should I be saying? What's, what's the piece of advice that I would give to my kids when they come to me and they say, I'm scared about the game that's coming up. I'm scared about this presentation that I have to do. What piece of advice should I give to my kids? So first off, you know, kind of, it's okay. Hey, like normalize the fear that it's okay that you're scared. There's nothing wrong with it. Like you, you know, don't beat yourself up for feeling that fear. And then like you get like a one way to handle the fear, to face the fear is often to, to, to do what an exercise called the Toyota five whys, where you ask, why are you scared? And they'll dig a little deeper. So when I did this, when writing, paradoxically writing my own book on fear, I was terrified. So I would write, cause I would ask myself, why am I scared? Well, people will think it's shit. Why does that scare me? People will judge me and think I'm stupid. Why does that scare me? Maybe I am stupid. Why, why does that scare me? Right? Maybe I'm not who I think I am. And you go, you ask deeper and you kind of get to the root core cause of it. And then you can bring to the surface, the awareness of the fear. And this is not going to make the fear go away. The key thing is when you're talking to your kid, it's like, look, the fear is not going to go away. Great. You're scared. And it's normal. The greatest athletes in the world all have fear before they step into their respective battlefields. And you'll hear a ton of athletes talk about it over and over again. So kind of give them those references, right? Like, Hey, this the, Tom Brady feels fear before he, he steps into the arena, you know, and fear is fuel. So you're helping them reframe that fear that it's not about getting rid of that fear. Use your fear. How can you use that fear as excitement? Why are you scared? I'm scared because I might lose. Hey, great. You know, that's that it's reframing it that I might lose because I give a shit about this game. Fear is a sign that I give a shit. Like if I did not, if I was not scared of writing a book, I would have just wrote something and put it out there. Who gives a shit? Right. But because I was scared of writing a bad book, I wrote a much better book. I must have trashed like 100,000 words worth of work. I put in months and years worth of work, but I ultimately wrote a book that, and not say this with any sort of ego, but was worthy of being endorsed by the Dalai Lama, right? Like, because I was scared, my fear fueled me to write a better book. So you can give them stories and references about how fear can be fuel. And then in their own mind, when they start feeling fear, they will look at it not as this thing to run away from, not as this thing to quote unquote, be fearless, but Hey, this is awesome. Like my fear is a sign that I give a shit. It's a sign that this matters to me. It's fuel to become a better warrior. Like warriors feel fear. And in, in Marines, we used to say, if somebody tells you they're not scared, they're either lying or they're fucking insane. Like fear is absolutely necessary to confront war because even on a neurological level, it's, it's like the, the fear and excitement has two sides of the same coin. So when the fear response happens, it increases focus, it increases adrenaline. It gives you the necessary tools within it, like evolutionary and biologically to face the battle you are facing. So you're helping them reframe it. And then you're also looking at like tools like visualization. What's on the other side of that fear? Why does this matter to you? So if I'm scared of playing this game, why does it matter to you that you win? Not just like, why am I scared, but why does it matter to you? Like I'm scared of going to Antarctica. So why, why should I face that fear? Right. So knowing the why, knowing your motivation, knowing your drive can give you fuel to move through the fear. And none of these things is going to make And This is very, very important to reiterate. Often when I say these things, people think, OK, if I do any of these things, the fear will go away. It's not or it, it may, but more than likely it won't. The fear will still be there. These are just tools to face the fear, to move through it, to step into it as opposed to running away from it. And another really valuable sort of weapon in the arsenal of engaging fear is thinking about the fear of inaction. Like when I wrote my book and often sometimes I would procrastinate, it took me like two to three years to write that book. I would inevitably what helped me finish it is the fear of, I would, I would do, literally visualize this, imagining myself dying on my deathbed, never having shared this message with the world, never having shared my core essence of who I am. So the fear of consequences of inaction can be an extremely powerful driver. You know, so you tap into that, like you ask your kid, like, would you rather just sit around doing nothing? And, and this, you have to kind of tap into their belief system, their values a little bit, right? To understand if the kid like says, yes, then you got a problem. But if the kid is like this, this, this driven athlete already, you know, you're tapping into that and you kind of know that. And you're saying, you know, like the fear of consequences of inaction for me of dying without ever having written this book was so much more terrifying and so much more horrific than the struggle I would have to endure of actually writing it and putting the book out there. And so those are some tools to kind of navigate that, that fear and to, to use it as fuel. Absolutely. And if you're listening, go back and re-listen to that again and take notes on that specific idea. You mentioned the Dalai Lama had endorsed your book. Do you think his friends call him like 
are they just is he just a llama? Is he your llama? <laughs> does he have a nickname? Dilam. Dilam, right? <laughs> so you now I want to go back into you had mentioned you were you were basically trying to kill yourself. You were moments away from slitting your wrists and from that point you've created this movement Firvana. It's a book. It has a, it has a, its own like solar system around it, this whole idea of of looking at fear and reframing the way that we look at fear, the way we look at pain, the way that we look at suffering. So how did you get from that point to where you were at this low of the low of your life to where you are now? Take on the, take us on that journey. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as I, as I was kind of hinting on earlier, it wasn't one aha moment and ma life magically got great. Like it was a slow, brutal, hard climb out of that abyss. And that never stops. Like the, after making the decision to go sober, I broke my sobriety multiple times, right? So it, it, the 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 inner work, it doesn't ever stop. You don't get to a moment where you've quote unquote arrived. You always have to do the work. And I want to stress that point. So it was a slow grind out of that abyss, but I started going deeper into studying neuroscience, reading hundreds of books, studying psychology, studying spirituality, putting it to work, finding my worthy struggle. For me, it became ultra running and these adventure sports, you know, knowing that I want to now share it with others. Often one of the most powerful weapons in the in transcending your own pain is view, like looking at your life in service of others you know so talking about reframing struggle as i mentioned i had survivor's guilt so everybody told me like not to feel guilty and i get it it was all coming from a place of love and you know it's not your fault and rationally i got it you can't control what happens in war bullets fly where they fly bombs have explode where they explode you can't explode you can't control that but rationally i may have understood that the nature of war but emotionally it didn't change the fact that i felt guilty that i should have died instead of my friend so instead of trying to make the guilt go away, because I started to recognize that guilt is not a bad emotion, it's just an emotion. For a long time, what I actually had up on my wall was a picture of my friend that I lost in the war. And it said, this should have been you. Earn this life. And my guilt became my ally. My guilt became my fuel to, do, to, to, live, some, to live this life in a meaningful way, to do something valuable with it and not waste it downing liters of vodka, to make this life worthy. And so that became my tool to now saying, hey, I've discovered this thing that we're, you know, that we, 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 we need to combat the demonization of fear because that's the fundamental problem. Like fear is the greatest thing that stops us, but it doesn't have to be. And so that the fundamental problem is that, 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 that demonization of not just fear, but suffering. And that's what then led to saying, okay, it's on me to now share this message with the world because I've figured a few things out and I'm blessed to have lived a great deal of life experience in my 37 years. I've lived through, I mean, beyond just all the things we talked about, I've volunteered in leper colonies, I've worked in post-conflict zones, I've worked with survivors of sex trafficking, you know, so I've seen the darkest edges of humanity and the light and the brightest edges of humanity, both within and without, right? I've lived in opulence, I've seen it, I've, I've blessed to experience a great deal of life that it's on me to now share the lessons from that with others. And so by writing a book, like when you teach, you learn, you know, as I'm sure you guys can relate with the work you do when you teach, you learn. So writing a book helped enhance my own learnings and it was a very cathartic process for myself. And then that became, you know, sharing the book with uh, like launching the book, which then led to this movement that I'm now working on building of ultimately helping like the, if I had to sort of summarize what Fearvana is about in one line, it's helping develop a positive, helping people develop a positive relationship to suffering so that they can find, live, and love their worthy struggle. And that's what we're now doing, like fear and nirvana, right? These two seemingly contradictory ideas that are in fact complementary and helping people transform their suffering into an experience of bliss. And once we do that, I mean, life is, what more could you want, right? You, you create, you find everything. That's, you create a life of what I call boundless bliss. Absolutely. What was the name of the movie with Jason Statham where he, he had to keep his heart rate up, the adrenaline pumping? Uh I know what you're Frank. talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I see you in that in that way. Like, are you able to sit on the front porch in a rocking chair and drink a glass of lemonade, or do you constantly need that? I I need the next thing that's going to drive me. Well, I've I've become more complex. So stillness. Uh, there was a point when, after pushing myself on a lot of different edges, going to you know climb mountains in the Himalayas, spending one month dragging a 190 pound sled across Greenland, where after going through a very challenging divorce a few years ago, I ended up breaking my sobriety. And so I wanted to find a new way to explore myself. And I realized the thing that I was most terrified of was stillness. So to combat that fear, I went into seven days of complete darkness, silence, and isolation. 
and just in, in dark, complete darkness, you have nothing to do. So you just sit with yourself. And when you're in complete darkness, you have nowhere external for consciousness to go because you're shutting off your visual sense. So you have nowhere else to go but within. And that was a very, I mean, it was a profound journey. And so I have combated my fear of stillness. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's, I mean, the, it, stillness is all, I would, I would, vent, I would, I would argue it's something that is, I think all human beings are terrified. It's not a fear. Like if you ask somebody, what are you most scared of? Nobody, I don't think anybody would say stillness, but it is a fear that we all have. And that's why, as Carl Jung said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd to avoid confronting their own soul. And you can see that in today's world. We do everything to distract ourselves, right? So I'm very, I've become more comfortable with stillness and I continue to pursue that edge. This year, I'm going into 10 days of darkness to go a little deeper than, than I did three years ago and, and, and did seven days. So I'm continuing to explore edges of different kinds and find and seeing what I find on when I open those doors. I wanted to close the loop on you bringing up the idea of neuroplasticity in our brain and being able to actually change the physical makeup of our brain. You tell a story about taxi drivers in England. Can you share that story? Um, and then wow. the idea of around, around neuroplasticity. Yeah. So there was this research study done with taxi drivers in England where they actually found that they have a larger hippocampus, which is the part of the brain associated with memory. They have a larger hippocampus than the rest of us because apparently London streets are quite complex and they have to memorize all these streets. And so because of the nature of their work, they literally change the physical structure of their brain. I mean, physically, it looked different than other people. And the, the impact of this, I mean, it's huge when you really think about it. Like, we can change the physical structure of our brain. And therefore, by changing the physical structure of our brain, we are changing our consciousness, our mind, and our identity, right? Because think about it as two separate entities. There's the brain, which is the physical thing, right? The physical thing in your, in your skull. And then there's the mind, which is consciousness. And the mind affects the brain as the brain affects the mind. So because they had to think differently than the rest of us, they had to memorize these complex streets by using the mind, they change the physical structure of their brain. And therefore that had the cyclical effect of then changing their mind, right? So the science of neuroplasticity is essentially that we have the brain's ability to change itself on a physical level. And therefore it changes our consciousness and how we view life, right? Like how we engage with external stimuli and with life. And we do that through conscious effort. So they've done plenty of other studies that like a piano player will have a different brain than others because they use these fingers, right? So, and a violin player, like any, anybody who's mastered their craft, their brain is going to look different because of how they engage with their body and with their, with their environment. So the point is whatever you are going through right now, that's not you. That's not set in stone. It's not, you're not locked into that identity You're not locked into that reality. You can change it. Now, the way to change it is through conscious effort. And that, that's the hard part. It's, you know, sometimes not even that simple, but it's hard. Like, and it is relentless. You don't do it once. It's like going to the gym. You don't do it once and you get six pack abs, right? You got to do it over and over and over and over and over again. And that's the same thing. When you put conscious effort into something over and over and over again, in time, it will literally start to change the physical structure of your brain and therefore then change how, change you change who you are and how you engage with the world. But that requires, and, and it's called actually, so uh, there's this process, Hebb's law, which says that neurons that fire together, wire together. And essentially what that means is the more I practice something, the more I'm creating these neuro neuronal patterns. So if I always, so for example, I worked with a client, every time he would sit on the computer to write, he would have a, like a visceral anxiety response and then retreat and go watch TV. So at a very simplistic level, his, basically his brain said, computer equals anxiety equals TV. Right. Like that's again, not in so many words, of course, but sim like to simplify, that's what happened. So to change it, he had to now take new behavior. And we started off doing very, very small behavior. Like, hey, I just want you to write on your computer for 30 seconds. Right. And then and take a little break or one minute, two minutes. And slowly in time, by building it, we're now creating a new response that says computer equals anxiety because the anxiety was still there. It's not going to go away instantly because, again, we don't control what first shows up in our brain and then equals writing as opposed to equals TV, right? And then in time, the anxiety even fades, you know? So once you build those patterns over time, you're changing how your brain physically is and therefore how you engage with the world. And there's this thing, it's called myelin in our brains, correct? Where it, as we, as we do things on a deeper level, that deep intentional practice will help change the way that our brains are wired. And that's why you see uh, prodigies in different areas of the world because the way that they practice whatever it is is done in a very intentional way. 
Yeah, the myelinization of those neuronal wires, it, it essentially ingrains it to make it more concrete, to make it a part of your, your behavior. And that's how habits are formed. Right? You do something enough, it becomes you, and it becomes your reality. And what a, an unbelievable epiphany when you realize that you are able to change the way that the physical structure of your brain is made up by your thoughts and, and the two impact each other. Your mind impacts your brain, your brain impacts your mind. I want to make sure that we get into this uh, this journey that you've been on uh, when I found your page and um, understood the journey that you were going on after listening to on a podcast. I started to follow along on your Instagram page, uh, Fearvana Instagram. And so you were in Antarctica um, and you were there for a short period of time in uh, preparation for the next longer journey. So talk to us first about the experience you were just on and then a lesson that you learned that will help prepare you for the next time that you're going there. Yeah, so I was uh, I was on a mission to ski up the Axel Heiberg Glacier, which is the glacier that Roald Amundsen took 110 years ago. He walked up, he took dog sleds uh, up that glacier to and became the first person to reach the South Pole. So it's a very remote, very challenging. You're skiing up soft snow and steep terrain, highly crevassed glacier. In fact, I had a bit of a crevasse scare when I was there, and my ski felt like flown into a crevasse, which was little horrifying, uh, <laughs> to say the least. This is crevasse of these bottomless pits in the ice, right? So um, it's a very challenging, very remote glacier. Then the mission was to ski from bottom of it to the top, up to the uh, reach the polar plateau and ski to the South Pole. It was about to be, it was, it was the plan was about a 35 day expedition. I made it to the top of the glacier. We, me and my team of four, of three other people, so four total, became one of only 26 people to ski up that glacier, which is pretty cool because if you think about it, like over 4,000 people have climbed Everest. So this is very, very remote, very, you know, completely different side of Antarctica. We became one of 20, 20, 26 people to climb up it. And soon after getting to the polar plateau, it was on day 17 that, and I'm not even sure how, I wasn't doing anything stupid or reckless. I wasn't walking around with no gloves but I ended up getting frostbite on three of my fingers. And on day 18, I had to be evacuated and pretty severe frostbite. More than likely I will lose tips, the tips of two of my fingers because they're quite black and uh, very, very, very gnarly looking. Um, but, and so the, the journey ended early, unfortunately, it was an unfortunate end, but nonetheless, it was an epic experience. I fell in love with Antarctica. It is a brutal, beautiful, hostile, unforgiving, and an incredible environment to experience and to come face to face with not just the raw power of nature, but to actually experience the human soul in the presence of such power. You really come to know yourself and through yourself, humanity in these experiences. And so it was a profound experience. And while I went there for the experience in and of itself, it was actually training for a, a much bigger mission in Antarctica where I'm going back to now do a, a, the first ever human power crossing of the continent. 105 days, completely alone, 2,700 kilometers. That is the mission now, to ski 2,700 kilometers, 1,700 miles for completely alone for three and a half months across the entire continent. And uh, I'm now training and building up my capacity for that. It is a feat that a man dubbed the world's greatest living explorer called probably impossible. The odds of failure are far greater than the odds of success on this feat. And so the training for it is daunting. And this year's Antarctica was to get a feel for Antarctica and the life out there. Although I've done polar exploration before many times in, in Norway and Greenland, um, I'm continuing to build my skill set. And so it was it was a great training ground. Like, I mean, I learned a ton about not just polar polar exploration, but, you know, we were kind of talking about this earlier about changing the brain. Like in Antarctica, everything you do has consequences and there's immediate consequences to that world. So if you set up your tent wrong, if you take off gloves, there's consequences. You get, you know, there's severe consequences. And so, in, and, I, and now I, how I bring that into this world is to constantly remind myself that everything I do here in this world also has consequences, but in this world, the consequences are delayed. Meaning that let's say I wake up every day and check Instagram, right? I'm going through it and I'm going through Instagram, Facebook, like no big deal. Like let's just say I spend five minutes. What's the, it's not the end of the world, right? But what it's doing is it's shaping your brain. It's shaping your brain repeatedly over time, getting you hooked to these kind of dopamine jolts that is changing how you interact with the world and changing how your brain is conditioned to interact with the world. And so these little things have consequences, but in this world, the consequences are delayed. In Antarctica and worlds that are that hostile, the consequences are immediate. 
So it was a great learning for me to that I bring back into this world beyond the technical skills of actual polar exploration, which I will bring back to Antarctica this time, is that every, and I'm constantly repeating this mantra to myself, that everything you do has consequences. Even if you won't see the consequence tomorrow, it does have consequence. It's, it's shaping your brain, it's shaping your identity, it's shaping your mind. So you better be fucking aware of what you're doing and who you want to be. And so that I repeat to that, that to myself all the time. I'm thinking back to my experience in high school. The book was, it was called To Build a Fire. The idea was he was alone in the wilderness and he knew he was going to die unless he built a fire. So that was his mission was to build a fire. And as mm -hmm. he's doing it, he's reliving his life and going through all the decisions that he made, everything that he did right and wrong throughout the course of his life. And he finally gets the, the spot built and he, you know, he gets the fire lit. Um, and then what happens is the fire starts to, to smoke and it starts to rage and he doesn't realize that he built the fire underneath a tree and it melted the snow and it put out the fire. And that was it. Now he's dead. Basically, he's going to die of, 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 of exposure at that point. And I, I thought about that because of every single decision that you made, like you said, has this could potentially be a fatal consequence so how do you keep your mind sharp in that in those moments knowing that your your mental senses will be dulled because of the cold exposure understanding that every single thing you do is a life or death experience for you you know i mean I, antarctica what i didn't go into this expedition like even to to, to do it you have to prove your metal like you have to have a pretty significant expedition background to show you that you are capable of doing this they don't just let any clown go do something like this right so i worked my way up to that point that i could handle and i thrived out there and i say this with no ego but i absolutely thrived out there mentally physically spiritually i crushed it so that came with practice with training with being in other environments with doing smaller expeditions i mean i was dragging tires for up to eight hours a day these two brutally heavy truck tires dragging them all across in the in the in, the, in a park in phoenix you know running ultra marathons just training like an absolute savage the body the mind the spirit doing mini polar expeditions to get myself ready and acclimatize that environment that now you know you can throw anything the world can throw anything at me and i will maintain a state of calm because i've, de I've, I've developed the practice through a lot of training to be the eye of the storm and what i mean by that is i like when i was training in vermont last winter i would literally go out into storms into winter storms and practice being calm in the storm to be the eye of the storm and a great tool i always use is mantras like i would just talk to myself like i would do cold river dips in a in a winter storm in vermont brutal conditions like i almost i was almost killed by a falling tree in these storms because i was the only idiot out there in that storm you know so i was literally like 10 feet away from being killed by this falling tree it had been that multiple experiences where i'm on the verge of, of death like that but point is by by putting myself into storms i practiced being the eye of the storm and being the center calm being still in the face of chaos but that comes with practice i brought the garbage cans in without a jacket on Last week. So I get it. I, I get it. Get I, it, man. I guess where you're coming from. When is, <laughs> when is the next expedition? When will that happen? Uh, the Darkness Retreat is in May, and then the next expedition after that is in October of this year. I'm doing a 22-day ski crossing of the Patagonian ice cap, and then I'm going back to Antarctica for a 30-day solo expedition for a mini solo expedition as kind of training for next year's big one. So I have many expeditions, and I'll be going back to the Arctic. I was supposed to go to the Arctic for a month in March, but that got nixed because of my frostbite, uh, and the recovery is a lot longer than I anticipated. Right. So uh, I'll be going to the Arctic for about four to six weeks next spring as well so i have a bunch of expeditions lined up for the next two years tremendous brother any final thoughts yeah i mean you gave us a lot of information and i think uh, our audience can take any of that in whatever direction they want use it and apply it into their life immediately but if you could kind of narrow it down this might be tough but one thing that they could take and start utilizing today after listening to this podcast you know, one thing to to do, it's kind of a summary of everything that I've been saying is, and it's that my core mantra out of all my mantras is suffer well, suffer well. So after listening to this, put yourself in an experience where you're going to go to war with yourself, where one party is going to want to quit and the other is going to want to fight. One of the greatest tools to do that is exercise. Barring serious physical issues, almost anybody can do that. So put yourself in a situation where you're going to have to go to war with yourself, where you're going to hate it and go into that suck and train to suffer well. The more you do that, the more you build yourself. And that's how confidence is built. Confidence is built by successfully surviving a risk, by going to war with yourself and rising on the other side of that. 
So the more you do that, the more you become someone who will be better than the older version of you. And that's how you keep evolving and keep growing and keep taking your life to the next level. So practice suffering, train in suffering, and suffer well. This has been an unbelievable hour on this podcast. I, I truly appreciate, we truly appreciate you being here. Um, I'm going to take a shower tonight. I'm going to I'm gonna throw that out there <laughs> right now. I'm going to step into my uncomfort. It worked. <laughs> it worked. It worked. The, the little, these little victories <laughs> along the way. Um, where can the Building Men audience find you? How do we follow along on this unbelievable journey? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Fearvana. That's the social media platform I'm most on. And Fearvana.com. That's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A. And the book is available on Amazon and Kindle, paperback, Audible. 100% of the profits go to charity as well. And we support many beautiful causes all over the world. So anywhere there, you can find me. And to the Building Men audience, the first person that sends an email to buildingmencoach at gmail.com with the title, The Eye of the Storm, will receive a free copy of the book. We'll send you a free copy of that book if you send us an email, Eye of the Storm. Um, so listen, this has been an unbelievable journey. We truly, truly appreciate for the Building Men audience. Find us on Instagram, building.men, buildingmencoach at gmail.com is the email. Our website is buildingmen.io. Check out our sponsors, Finish the Race Apparel, FTRapparel.com, and Become Stronger Industries. They are the makers of handmade steel maces. Also, our Hero's Journey Men's Retreat, April 28th through May 1st, is coming up shortly. So reach out to us for more information. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Go a step further than you thought you can go. We'll see you next time on Building Men.